This is Rabbi Sharon Brouse, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. I know that some parents here have little ones in the room, and I just want to share with you that I'm going to be speaking about the events of last Shabbat. And so if you're more comfortable, um, to please take care of yourselves and your little people. When the holiday of Simchat Torah lands on Shabbat, we are called to experience a double dose of joy. This year, Shabbat Simchat Torah saw depravity and cruelty wrought upon our family in Israel in the form of atrocities that defy all logic and reason. There is no justification. There is no context that excuses the brutality and the terror that Hamas visited upon our people last Saturday. Our history as Jews has been marked by sporadic, obscene spasms of violence directed against our people. The blood libel massacres of York Castle and Mainz and Cologne and across Europe, the Chmelniki pogroms and Kristallnacht and, and, and. The massacre of Simchat Torah 5784 will go down in history as one of the most horrific in history. The Holocaust has been, as Rabbi Harold Schulweis so perceptively stated, and I often repeat, the dominant psychic reality of the Jew. I and we have had to work very hard to deepen our roots and to honor our history without looking at the whole world through Shoah-colored glasses all the time. And even still, it is nearly impossible for stories from Kibbutz Be'eri and Kfar Aza and the festival dance party not to trigger our multi-generational Holocaust trauma. Entire families slaughtered. Families smoked out of safe rooms as their homes were set on fire and then taken at gunpoint into captivity. Young women being degraded, abused, and assaulted. Teenagers. Shoah survivors themselves, those who came face to face with unmitigated evil and prevailed, now once again forced to confront what happens in this world when human beings manually override their instinctive humanity and plunge into the depths of darkness and human cruelty? What they did to the babies, I can't even repeat. And as I found myself saying again and again over the course of the past week, adding to our shock and our anguish and our heartache and our fear, is an existential loneliness. I have felt it, and I know that many of you have too. The clear message from many people in the world, especially from our world, those who claim to care about justice and human dignity, is that these Israeli victims somehow deserved this terrible fate. 
This week, I read statements from longtime allies that shock the conscience, some of them so implausible that I actually literally had to reread them multiple times to make sure that they were not satire. In these statements was not only a failure to condemn the atrocities committed against these innocents, but proud support for Hamas. This week, we entered the upside-down world when a retrograde, regressive, totalitarian, misogynistic, messianic terrorist regime became, for the time being, the hero of the left. How could it be? To justify barbarity in the service of decolonization and the liberation of Palestine requires more than an ideological commitment to Palestinian freedom. It demands mental and emotional contortions that render a person fundamentally unable to see the humanity in a Jew. It requires a deep-rooted association with Jews and power, the Jew as oppressor, the Jew as victimizer, so much so that even after a horrific terror attack, even teenagers and elders are being carted naked through Gaza does not evoke a tear of sympathy. How does a person look at a campaign of annihilation and see a quest for liberation? Seeing every and any Jew, whether a 74-year-old feminist peacemaker who drove Palestinian children for chemo treatments in Israeli hospitals, or a safta and her special needs granddaughter, or a small boy who looks too much like my son, or a mother and a daughter from Chicago who are on a trip visiting their grandma, or a beautiful 23-year-old American who loves soccer and building bridges and making art for peace, seeing these people as legitimate targets for murder or abduction, you must first have ingested a full diet of genocidal anti-Semitism. And I'm not even talking just about Hamas. I'm talking about their defenders here and around the world. You know me. You know that for decades I have strongly and unequivocally opposed the occupation. I have spoken out against Israel's increasingly hardline, ultra-nationalist and now messianic government. I even used my biggest pulpit of the year, Yom Kippur, just a couple of weeks ago, to warn against a growing racism and religious extremism in the Israeli government that I believe threatens the whole project of the state of Israel. It has not been easy to speak out in this current climate. I have received death threats. I have lost friends and donors and congregants for speaking this way over the years for insisting that the only liberation is a shared liberation, that our destinies as Jews and Palestinians are tied up in one another. And I still believe, even after Shabbat Simcha Torah, all of that, in fact, it is precisely from that particular moral vantage point that I say today, unequivocally, Defending Hamas's atrocities does not signal that you care about justice for Palestinians. It only reveals that you accept the same tropes of Jewish power that led to those murderous rampages in Europe and throughout history. The potent ancient lie 
that any Jew is responsible for the behavior of every Jew. The certainty that Jews, all Jews, any Jews, including us, are Satan's spawn, responsible for killing God, responsible for the Black Death, responsible for economic collapse, responsible for migrant caravans and hurricanes and space lasers, responsible for COVID, responsible for all human suffering. We're lonely. And we're not the first to experience a sense of existential loneliness. Rav Yosef Soloveitchik wrote so long ago about the historical loneliness of the Jew. And I felt it. I felt it profoundly this week. And I know that many of you did too. Yehuda Kurtzer has shared something that Leo Strauss wrote, writing of Spinoza's critique of religion. He said, he wrote about the problem of the Western Jew who severs his connection with the Jewish community expecting that he will become a normal member of a purely liberal or universal human society and then is naturally perplexed when he finds no such society willing to welcome and embrace him. Maybe you can relate. Thankfully, many of us have found in this last week great solace in our Jewish community, which has drawn us in with its promise to hold and be held with only tenderness, no hand-wringing, just sorrow and solidarity. And this is precisely what Strauss ultimately proposes. The solution to the Jews' problem, he writes, is to return to the Jewish community. I asked my daughter, who's at school in New York City, if she wanted to get out of the city for Shabbat to get away from the truly hostile and toxic campus environment. I need to be with my Jewish community, Ima, she said. It is within community that I have been reminded this week of the beauty and the strength and the resiliency and the power of the Jewish collective. Our Ikar community has gathered again and again and again, holding one another with grace and tenderness. And our broader Jewish community even as my Israeli family and friends have been going to funerals and shivas literally every single day this past week, they have mobilized, driven not by retribution and rage, but by their own sorrow and solidarity, collecting thousands of boxes of diapers and flashlights, breast milk and baby food, sleeping bags for the refugees coming up from the border communities into the center of the country, now completely uprooted from their homes, not certain if they'll ever be able to return. Israeli civil society has truly risen up in this moment to keep people safe and provide for one another, to give each other comfort and consolation and hope in the darkest chapter. That is the power of Jewish community. But even still for many of us, even knowing this, the loneliness persists. I think it's because of the split Jewish psyche, which I've spoken about many times here before. It's not enough for many of us to be an Am Levadad Yishkon, a people that dwells apart, not reckoned among the nations. Something in our heart longs to be more than eternally vigilant, eternally skeptical, fully independent of all others. Despite all the bravado, we don't actually want to be an island because most of us have also internalized a universalist impulse 
which comes directly from this week's Parsha, right at the beginning of creation. It is not good for a person or a people to walk alone through this world. We yearn desperately to cast our lot with humanity. We believe that we are all caught up in an inescapable network of humanity. As much as we strive to build self-reliance, we, like all people, hunger to be understood by those outside our community. We hunger to be seen in our suffering. Our humble ask is that people give a damn when we die. It visits an additional anguish on our broken hearts when they do not. But even as I hold this week grave disappointment with those who refuse to see us, even as I shudder to think how deeply the anti-Semitism is embedded in the system that people cannot even see it, even still, I know in my heart, and I want you to know in yours that we are not actually as alone as we feel. One week after this most horrific attack on the Jewish people, I am asking that as much as we do not let those who seek to destroy us prevail, neither do we let those who suffer from gross moral miscalculations define this moment. Let us not let the algorithm shape our worldview. In fact, those cruel, callous voices out there are not the only voices. Even as my heart broke this week, our congressperson, Representative Sidney Kamlagerdove, called and texted me multiple times to share her anguish and her condemnation, to ask how I and our Jewish community are holding up, to see how she could be of support to us. Our district attorney, George Gascon, DA of one of the largest cities in the country, called repeatedly to say that it was his top priority to keep our community safe among threats of violence and upheaval, and then came to join us this morning for the beginning part of our service. Our mayor, Karen Bass, showed up with dozens of other elected officials only hours after they were asked to come, to stand with our Jewish community on Sunday night, and so many friends and preachers and pastors, including Palestinian friends, have reached out to me this week to check on our community and on my family in Israel and to express their deep sorrow even as they nurse their own broken hearts. It is a human instinct to key in on what's missing, often at the expense of what is present right before us. Gaslighting in the face of real tragedy greatly exacerbates our pain and our suffering, but it is not everything. It's not even most of what's happening out there. The president of Auburn Seminary, a black theologian, reached out to me with great care and very eagerly responded to my request, along with my dear Schiffer Bronznik, that we build a multi-faith campaign to free the captives. On Yom Kippur, in the conversation that I had here with Dr. Murthy, the Surgeon General, I shared the Midrash about Adam Harishon, the first person, on the sixth day of creation, which we read about today at the end of the first day of his life. The sun begins to set and Adam starts to panic and he wonders if maybe he did something to deserve this darkness. As the sky blackens, he becomes increasingly fearful. Maybe he thinks, maybe the whole world is ending. I imagine that Eve is very scared seeing Adam so undone by this darkness. 
by his vulnerability and his anxiety and his pain. But Eve does not retreat from Adam. Instead, she comes close. She sits down right across from him and they hold each other all night long, weeping and wailing until to their astonishment, the world does not return to null and void, but instead the first hint of a new dawn emerges. This, I believe, is the most important question of our lives. When the darkness comes, who will sit and weep by your side? Who will share your worry? Who will not be scared away by your grief and vulnerability, but will come closer to it? Who will see you? And who will you see? As we walk into this unknown future, full of grief and uncertainty, I thank our community for stepping closer in the depths of our heartache this week. Please let us continue to find our way to each other with tenderness, we need one another now. And I thank our friends and allies who also came close, even as they held their own anguished hearts. And I ask us to promise that this feeling of isolation and loneliness, the relief that came with the solidarity when it came, will remind us of the sacred responsibility to step closer when another people is suffering. Do you understand what I'm saying? Our close encounter with the pain of the narrowing of the lens of moral concern must awaken us to the danger of narrowing our own lens of moral concern. The fact that other people have lost their damn minds must awaken us and ensure that we don't lose our damn minds in the days ahead. Sadly, I know that in the coming days, we will have many opportunities to be the kinds of allies and friends that we wish we had been embraced by this week. It is precisely my unremitting desire for my own pain to be validated that will guide me in validating and crying out with other human beings who are suffering, including Palestinian civilians in Gaza, for whom the situation has become increasingly desperate. I close by amplifying the words of the mothers. Rachel Goldberg, a close friend and a family member to many in our community, the mother of Hirsch Goldberg Polin, who was abducted from the festival and brought into Gaza. Hirsch's arm was blown off while he was protecting friends from Hamas bullets and grenades. He is badly wounded and he has not been heard from now for over a week. These are Rachel's words. I want things to go back to how they were before Saturday morning, before I saw Hirsch's text messages that alerted me that he was in grave danger. I love you and I'm sorry. Before Hamas launched its attacks, which have claimed more than 1,200 innocent lives in Israel and resulted in about 150 innocent hostages being held in Gaza with no foreseeable way out, before my son's phone was a black box with no answer. But here we are, stuck in the awful present. Time is slowly ticking into the future with these hostages approaching a week in captivity. If he is still alive, how much longer can he survive? His wounds are grievous. I hope someone 
somewhere is being kind to him, is caring for him, attending to him. Hirsch is my whole world, and this evil is the flood that is destroying it. I really don't know if anything can save it. If anyone knows, please tell me. To save a life our sages taught is to save a world. Please help me save my son. It will save our world. Every single person in Gaza has a mother or had a mother at some point. And I would say this then, as a mother to other mothers, if you see Hirsch, please help him. I think about it a lot. I really think I would help your son if he was in front of me, injured and near me. Rachel's words reminded me of the beautiful prayer that was written by my friend Rabbi Tamar Elad Applebaum, which she co-wrote with a sheikha, with a Palestinian, with a Palestinian Muslim religious leader, Ibtisam Mahamid. And I invite you to turn and look at these words and say them with me. God of life, who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, may it be your will to hear the prayer of mothers, for you did not create us to kill each other, nor to live in fear, anger, or hatred in your world, but rather you have created us so we can grant permission to one another to sanctify your name of life, your name of peace in this world. For these things I weep, my eye, my eye runs down with water, for our children crying at night, for parents holding their children with despair and darkness in their hearts, for a gate that is closing, and who will open it while day has not yet dawned. I say this today, it will take generations for our people to recover from the psychic wounds that we have incurred the past week. I have a sense that our healing will come only when we treat each other, mother to mother, child to child, sister to sister, human to human, as though we and each other were our shared responsibility. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe and please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.